July, we've been working our way through First and Second Samuel. So we'll, before we read our scripture today, I'm going to give a little recap of how we got here. We started with Israel's request for a king because all the other emerging nation states had a king, and well, they felt left out. God replies with the 11th century BCE version of, well, if all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? Israel decides that a bridge-jumping king sounds like the life of a party, so God chooses their first king, a hunky guy named Saul, and we learn the valuable life lesson that not every gorgeous guy who wanders into town in search of his lost donkey will end up being a successful head of state. Things don't go so great for Saul, and so God chooses a new king named David. David slays a giant, and Saul gets jealous and tries to kill him. Saul's son saves, Saul's son Jonathan saves David, who is also the love of his life. But then Saul and David die in battle. So now David is finally king, and he wastes no time. He kills a bunch of enemies, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and now has a plan to build a spectacular temple for God's presence to live in. And that brings us to the text today. It probably also demonstrates my dismal future in doing biblical-based stand-up. So Michelle will come up and read our scripture, and then I'll get serious. But first, let's pray. Loving and gracious God, we give thanks for your presence and your spirit that saturates our world. We pray that through that spirit, we will hear your word for us. Amen. Our scripture today comes from 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 14. When the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living in this cedar palace, but God's chest is housed in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you are thinking, because the Lord is with you. But that very night, the Lord's word came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and tell him that this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build a temple for me to live in. In fact, I haven't lived in a temple from the day I brought Israel out of Egypt until now. Instead, I've been traveling around in a tent and in a dwelling. Throughout my traveling around with the Israelites, did I ever ask any of Israel's tribal leaders I appointed to shepherd my people, why haven't you built me a cedar temple? So then, say this to my servant David. This is what the Lord of heavenly forces says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be a leader over my people my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've eliminated all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest people on earth. I'm going to provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and no longer be disturbed. Cruel people will no longer trouble them as they had been earlier. When I appointed leaders over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
And the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a dynasty for you. When the time comes for you to die and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your descendant, one of your very own children, to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a temple for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This is the word of the Lord. As our text picks up, David wants to build a temple for the Lord. So David goes to the prophet Nathan, who agrees with this plan. After all, God has anointed David. God is working through David. So it makes sense that David would build a temple. But God is not thrilled about this plan. This may be a little surprising, because the temple will become the center of Israel's religious life. It will house the holy of holies, the, the place where God's physical dwelling uh, dwells. So why is God opposed? There are a few reasons. Some of it has to do with David. In First Chronicles, we learn, or well, God tells David, you won't build a temple for my name because you've spilled too much blood on the ground before me. Basically, David's been too violent to build God's temple. And it's actually not only his violence. In our, in our text today, David's motivation is a little bit suspect. David is in the middle of an elaborate plan to consolidate his political power by making Jerusalem the capital of the kingdom, and that the temple is the final piece that will enable him to realize his political ambitions. But, but God's reluctance here has more than just David, and we see it in our scripture. In verse 6, God tells Nathan, I haven't lived in my temple from the day I brought you out of Egypt into now. Instead, I've been traveling around in a tent and, and basically goes on to say, I never asked for this. Because up until this point, God has had a home. It was called the tabernacle. And it's basically a tent. So every time the people of God travel to a new place, they set up this tent. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant goes. It's where the Holy of Holies is. It's where God's presence dwells. And, and this is really important because it means that God's presence is not at a special site where people would go to in order to see God. Instead, God goes with the people wherever they go. So another way, the people don't journey to find God. God journeys with the people. But if the temple, or, is, or a god, really, is located in a certain place, then things change. Then those in power can decide who has access to God. There can be rules about who gets to visit, how holy they need to be, and what kind of sacrifice they need to bring. When God lives in only one place, it, it's almost like God is held captive by the people who control that place. 
So if a temple is built and God has a permanent home, it, it will and it, it does shape how the people worship God and how they think about God. People will end up traveling for days or weeks to visit the temple because, well, it's more holy than every other place on earth. Because after all, it, it's God's house. And many Christians, probably most Christians today, don't believe that there's one spot on earth where God lives. But we do have some similar dynamics. We have reverence for sacred spaces. I mean, just kind of think back to some of the most, our like personal, most influential experiences of faith, like where we kind of found God. Many of those happened at church. Maybe it was when we were an awkward teenager and a youth pastor was the first adult that wasn't our parents to really listen to us and value us as as people. Or maybe it was as an adult, finding a community where we could be accepted as our full self. Or maybe we, we found a group of people who were trying to live lives of joy and meaning through service and spirituality and community. And, and all that happened around this place called church. I mean, most of us probably wouldn't be here if we hadn't experienced the church as a place where we connect with God. And that makes this place sacred. And, and that's a good and beautiful thing. But also, when God's presence is connected to a particular place that's controlled by particular people, it has some downsides. And I don't, I don't need to tell this room just how painful it is to be rejected by a faith community because of our, our bodies, our sexuality, our theology, or our ideas about justice that, that just don't line up with the church's leadership. I mean, honestly, most people never come back. And, and this is sort of a sidebar, but... Uh, every week I'm struck by the courage and faithfulness that it takes for so many of y'all to return to church after everything that you've been through. But it's, it's not only the, the horror stories, the abusive experiences or the painful experiences of our past. Actually, our good experiences at church shape how we think about the world. Like, when, when we treat the church as sacred, do we then treat the rest of the world as a little bit less sacred? Do we believe that God is somehow less present in the, the checkout line at the grocery store than in church? Or maybe do we, do we let God live in this building so that we are in control of when we encounter God? Do we let God live here so that we can keep our spiritual life separate from our work life or maybe even our home life? I mean, and I don't know, I'm just sort of throwing stuff out. But I suspect we'd think differently about the world if we saw the whole world as God's house. 
And this actually brings us back to our scripture. There's this really cool play on words that we missed it in our translation. We read the, the CEB. And, uh, but in Hebrew, when David says that he wants to build God a temple, it actually says he wants to build God a house. That's like verse, around verse 6, that first section. But then later, God replies, or God replies, I don't need a house, but I will make you a house. And, and the, actually, the CEB does a really good job of getting the content of it, because it says, I'll make you a dynasty, as in the house of David, Jesus' lineage. And, and that misses the, the word play on, on the word house, but it, it, it explains the point. David wants to build a physical house, but God replies, no, no, my home's not a place. My home is with a people. And then comes the surprising part. After we learn that, that God doesn't want or need a house, God compromises and agrees to let David's son Solomon build a temple where God will live. And, and that feels a little bit out of place, that God would say, this is what's right and good, but then go along with something different. But this is actually kind of the, the central theme of First and Second Samuel. We see very clearly that, that God wants Israel to be structured in a particular way, but God still works through them when they go a different direction. In many ways, these two books are about what God wants versus what God is willing to live with. So, I mean, just as a, a kind of a recap of, of some of what we've looked at, God doesn't want Israel to have a king, because kings lead to injustice. But when the people want a king, God chooses and anoints Saul the David. And, and God is opposed to the, the violent ambition that we see play out between Saul and David, but God still works through them despite their violence. And of course, in today's story, God agrees to a temple, even though it's not really what God wants. God is, is pretty clear about what God wants, but then God goes along with something different. And that is kind of confusing. Like, what are we supposed to think about the temple? I mean, it, it can't be that bad, because... God agrees to it, and then later on, God's intimately involved in the design, and, and the temple becomes the center of religious life. But also, it can't be that good because of, well, all the things I just said. So, so what do we do with this? I think maybe we give thanks. Because rarely in our life is anything entirely good or entirely bad. And if we fall into this kind of dualistic thinking, we can end up hurting ourselves and others. Just take the example of the church. If we think, well, the church is the bride of Christ, and God appointed these guys to be in charge, so who am I to challenge God? Well, we can end up sanctifying abuse and, and limiting ourselves to one 
particular way of experiencing God. But on the other hand, if we write off the church as a power-hungry institution that God didn't really intend to set up in the first place, well, then we miss out on the gift of a spiritual community that's been a home for people for thousands of years. And it's not just the church. So much of our lives ask us to navigate our way through these kinds of questions. Questions where the answer isn't quite yes and it's not quite no. Questions where I personally feel a little bit queasy saying, yes, God is at work. Because I, I know in this situation it feels like there's some sketchy stuff happening. But I also feel queasy saying, no, God wants no part in this because I know good things are still taking place. I mean, I, I, and, I, and this, this sort of extends out. I, I mean, I feel this in my relationship with people, people who seem to be doing harm and to seem to be doing good. As, as the pastor of this church, I feel it hanging out with friends who are evangelical pastors whose churches have hurt people I care about and whose churches have helped people I care about. I, I feel this in, in social justice communities that from whom I learned so much about anti-colonialist, anti-racist active, activism that centers the voices of the marginalized and, and also can end up excluding people who want to get involved but but no, they aren't woke enough to keep up with the terms and practices that the, those social justice communities rely on. And, and it, it goes on. We've got all of, the, all of us have different examples of this in our lives. It's, it's the life we live. We've got choices, but we rarely get to choose between good and bad. But you know what? God didn't either. God didn't get to choose between yeah, righteous, faithful servants who always made the best choice or evil kings. And, and this didn't keep God from saying what was good and true and what was bad. God was still clear about what was good, but when an ideal option didn't materialize, God chose the imperfect people who showed up. God wasn't the destination point for those who were righteous. God joins us on the journey. And, and we see that in our text today, that, that God's presence overflows in the house of God and beyond. So yeah, it's complicated. It makes us feel all kinds of way. But, but through it all, I think the, the main passage, or the main point of this text, and really probably almost all, whatever, five or six passages that we've looked at, is that, that God is by our side. So I guess my response to, the, to all this is a simple thanks be to God. Amen.